Sitting on top of the United States Capitol building is a 20-foot statue known as the Freedom Lady. She was sculpted in Italy by Roman artists and was shipped across the ocean to her perch in Washington, D.C. But during the delivery, the ship that was carrying the Freedom Lady encountered a fierce storm. Howling winds, huge waves beat against the ship. The ship was threatening to capsize when the skipper ordered all of the cargo thrown overboard. But when the men went to toss over the Freedom Lady, the captain shouted, No, never! We'll flounder before we throw freedom away. And this is the message of the book of Galatians. Never throw away your freedom. And yet, sadly, many Christians do. They doubt if God's grace is truly sufficient. And so they toss in a few good works just to be on the safe side. They're always getting down because they're never living up as if it were up to them in the first place. Rather than walk by faith, they measure their righteousness against some set of standards. They get bullied by the legalist, enslaved to an overworked conscience. They pay homage traditions that have long been outdated, that have lost their purpose, In a million little ways, their approach to life leans toward legalism and in doing so insults the grace of God. And what people don't realize is that trying to be on the safe side can put you on the wrong side. And that is the danger that Paul addresses here in the book of Galatians. Now, history tells us that the Galatians were country folk, sort of backwoods people, the ancient hillbillies, if you will. The Galatians were unstable and uneducated, and they were easily misled. In fact, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, when Paul visits Galatia, we get an example of their fickleness. Paul works a miracle. He heals a lame man in the gate of Lystra. And at first, the townsfolk assume that he's a Greek god come to visit, and they want to worship him. Paul, of course, sets the record straight. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, but as he does... Grace-rejecting Jews arrive. They sort of mingle within the crowd. They stir up the people against Paul. And in the end, the Galatians pick up rocks to stone the man that they had originally tried to worship. How's that for some confusion? In a sense, the Galatians were still throwing rocks at Paul. These Jewish legalists who had tried to kill Paul while he was among them are now trying to assassinate his calling and character. And that's why he begins the letter, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul lets us know up front that he was not commissioned by any church, not by denomination, He did not receive his ordination through some theological institution, but rather he was ordained by God himself, by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. God's seminary degrees, ordination certificates are nothing but wallpaper unless God has called and ordained the man himself. Paul cuts to the chase in verse 6. He gets right to the point of why he's writing. He tells the Galatians, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The Galatians were Christians who were suffering from a case of covenant confusion. 
The terms of their relationship with God had become muddled by the false teachers. These Jewish legalists, or what we call Judaizers, had infiltrated the church. They taught it was okay to believe in Jesus as long as you also kept the Jewish rules, all the various rituals. Salvation was obtained through Christ, but it was maintained by your own good works. That was their line. That was their teaching. Paul warns us that this kind of thinking is not the gospel at all. Rather than good news, this is bad news. Guys, any gospel that depends on my performance, it's bad news. It's going to be a dead end. Understand, false teachers distort the gospel in three ways. Some twist the truth. They make it say what God never meant for it to say. Some subtract from the truth. They leave out crucial elements and they water down the word of God. But then there are some that add to the truth. And this was the tactic of the Judaizers. Oh, they said, faith is fine. Jesus is good. The cross, well, it works. The blood, it helps. But it's not enough to cover sin. To be dressed for heaven, you've got to add to your wardrobe a few religious accessories. Like Sabbath worship like circumcision or baptism or monthly fasting or weekly tithing or daily devotions, this discipline, that sacrifice. But Paul confronts these Judaizers in this letter. Our standing with God in no way is affected by our work. It's affected by the work of Jesus Christ. It's faith and grace, not flesh and works, that makes us right with God. In verse 8, Paul goes as far as to say that even if an angel comes and sits on the end of your bed and teaches you some other gospel than the gospel of grace, don't listen to him. In fact, Paul says, let him be accursed or literally damned to hell. That's probably where he's from anyway. It's interesting, if the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, had heeded Paul's words when he was visited by an angel and shared a different gospel... He wouldn't have passed on the baloney from Aroni and confused so many people. It's a shame. Paul, though, is clear. Any gospel other than the gospel of grace is a sham. The grace Paul preached was not man's invention. It came through revelation, not education, not imagination, but from revelation from God. He says of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 12, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul begins to defend the true gospel by recounting its power in his own life. He had been climbing the rabbinical ladder of success when his life was intercepted by Jesus Christ. Verse 16 tells us that God not only revealed his gospel to Paul, but his son in Paul. And this is a lesson we should never forget. Christianity is not just a truth to be learned. It's a person to be experienced. You see, it took more than legalism to turn Christianity's chief persecutor into its most enthusiastic preacher. It took the power of God. And that was the gospel of God's grace. After God intercepted Paul, he says in verse 16, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. In other words, Paul didn't run off and join a church group. He didn't go and join a Bible study. Rather, he went to Arabia, where he sought inspiration, not indoctrination. 
Paul opened up his heart to God there in Arabia personally and privately. He wanted God to speak to him before he consulted with man. It was three years there in Arabia before he eventually went back to Jerusalem to talk to the other apostles. Guys, Paul's relationship with God wasn't cloned. It wasn't copied. It was real and authentic. You know, all too often we Christians, we opt for duplication rather than inspiration and revelation. We take our cues from what other believers are doing. Or worse, we mimic what the world is doing rather than seek God personally for His specific directions for our own life. Paul was nobody's clone. He was a Christian, an authentic, real Christian. Years ago, Steve Taylor wrote a song. It was called, I Want to Be a Clone. I'll read you the lyrics. I'd gone through so much other stuff that walking down the aisle was tough, but now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord into my heart. They said that was the way to start, but now you've got to play the part. I want to be a clone. They told me that I'd fall away unless I followed what they say. Who needs the Bible anyway? I want to be a clone. So now I see the whole design. The church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. I've learned enough to stay afloat, but not so much I rocked the boat. I'm glad they shoved it down my throat. I want to be a clone. And then the bridge that sort of ties the song together, it says, Because if you want to be one of us, you've got to act. If you want to be one of his, you've got to act like one of us. My point is, is that Paul was nobody's clone. And we shouldn't be either. God's not into cookie-cutter Christians. Like Paul, each of us needs to open our heart to God and allow Jesus to shape us uniquely and individually. He has a specific plan for each of us. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul goes toe-to-toe with false doctrine. He fights for grace. You see, 14 years later, on a trip to Jerusalem, Paul ran into Jews who had made circumcision a must. In fact, they wanted Paul's Gentile buddy Titus to go under the knife. Paul says, not on your life. To make a Jewish ritual mandatory was in essence to say that Christ was not enough, that grace was not sufficient, that faith was not effective. To teach Christ plus anything is to create another gospel. I like, one, like, I like what one old preacher said. He said, preach a full gospel, Christ and nothing less. A plain gospel, Christ and nothing more, and a pure gospel, Christ and nothing else. I like that. In verse 4, Paul calls the compromisers false brethren. Literally in the Greek, it's pseudo-Christians, bogus brothers. The New English Bible puts it sham Christians. Often we think that the enemy of Christianity is the ardent starch atheist, or the heathen with no morals. But you know, the real enemy is the legalist who advocates a mixture of grace and grit, works and faith. It's the guy or gal who teaches you get God's favor through Christ, but you keep in God's favor and then they fill in the blank with their version of spirituality. Let me warn you. Turn this person loose in your church, 
and you'll end up with a divided church. Their values become the dividing line between the spiritual haves and the have-nots. And if tolerated, this legalist will kill the life of the church. Often we view the legalist as an ally. We're tough on immorality, but we're soft on legalism. Trust me, both are our enemies. You see, it's grace that creates a mood of acceptance within a church. It's grace that gives believers the freedom to grow at their own pace. It's grace that keeps us open to God instead of stifled by our own failures. It's grace that causes us to grow. And this is the mountain on which Paul is willing to die. He refuses to budge an inch when it comes to God's grace. Even in Antioch, Paul took a stand. At first, Peter had no problem eating with the Gentiles there. At Cornelius' house, Peter had learned that the gospel was grace for every race. No longer was being a Jew or being circumcised or keeping the law an advantage. But when the James gang arrived in Antioch, oh, how Peter wanted to impress these Jewish dignitaries. And so he turned up his nose at his newfound Gentile friends. His prejudice implied that the Gentiles were second-class Christians, that they weren't as righteous as the Jews. And it betrayed the truth that we are all equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember, though, this was Pentecost Pete. Paul was going up against one of the biggest of big wheels. Remember, Jesus had given Peter the keys to the kingdom, but Paul didn't care. He realized that God had had no shared no favoritism toward anyone. It's been said, a famous name can never justify an infamous act. Peter was in the wrong. And Paul went toe-to-toe with him and confronted him and opposed the false impression that he was giving. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul explains the doctrine behind his actions. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now you remember, to be justified is to be treated by God just as if I'd never sinned. Certainly God knows I've sinned. He's seen it all. But he is willing to treat me as sinless because of my faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Paul asks in verse 17 and 18, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, not only is the law incapable of justifying a person, the law exposes our sin. And the law in essence, necessitates our judgment. God's law is a standard that I can't meet. It demands perfection. And I'm not perfect. So when I live under the law, I am exposing my faults. I am literally asking to be judged. Paul is confronting these Christians and he's saying, look, on the one hand, you want God to treat you as if you've never sinned. And yet, on the other hand, you keep living under the law and reminding God in yourself that you're a sinner. You know, it's one or the other. Law and grace are like oil and water, like honey and vinegar, like drinking and driving. They just don't mix. You can't rely on your grit and God's grace at the same time. It's one or the other. 
It's either grace or works. When I came to Jesus Christ, I was spiritually joined to all that he did. So were you. When he died, I died with him. When he rose, I rose with him. And when I died, I not only died to sin, I died to the law. I am no longer connected to a legal standard. Now I'm connected to a living Savior. Verse 20 says that I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here is how you and I overcome sin in our lives. It's by realizing that the victory is not up to us. It's no longer our responsibility. Guys, the Christian life is the exchanged life. I stop relying on my own strength and energies, and I begin to trust Jesus to live his life through me. You know, we believe in the miracle of the resurrection, but the real miracle is that the spirit of Jesus lives in us today. Do you believe it? Let me ask you. Who's doing the living in your life? I hope it's Jesus. I hope you've recognized yourself crucified with Christ and that you're allowing God to live His life through you. This is why Paul says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. In other words, he says, I cooperate with God's grace. I don't fight it. I don't buck it. I don't give up when... I fail. I don't give up on grace when my shortcomings become apparent. I don't let grace get displaced by my doubt or by my fear or by my guilt or by my pride. I keep a grip on God's grace. This is how we need to live our lives. Never forget how chapter 2 closes. He ends the argument once and for all. He says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If I could be good enough for God, Jesus would have never had to die. He did, which means I can't. But here was the problem in Galatia. These believers had embraced grace, but they had yet to learn to live accordingly. They had failed to shift gears, and they were retreating from the glories of grace into the deadly clutches of legalism. And this is why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? In verse 2, he takes them back to their spiritual beginnings. And he asks them if they receive the Spirit by law or by faith. Of course, the answer was by faith. And then in verse 3, Paul asks, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In other words, when you were saved, the Spirit did a work in your heart. Why then are you now trusting in your own work? Why not continue to rely on the Spirit's work in your life? Guys, it's not our hard work or our diligence or our discipline or our willpower that enables us to live a godly life. The only way to live a holy life is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Galatians were having problems adapting to grace Because they had been trained and drilled and conditioned by ungrace. Think for a moment about every other sphere of your life. Business, sports, school. The emphasis is on performance. It's all grit and grades and very little grace. The prize goes to the achiever, not the believer. 
The Galatians, you see, understood grace, but they had been conditioned by works. This can be our problem, too. On the one hand, I can voice the importance of faith and then turn around and live as if it's up to me. I've got to learn to shift gears. I've got to learn to rely on God's grace rather than my performance. I've got to shed that work hard mentality and learn to rest and trust in His work for me. If you're in the ministry and affect other people's lives, it's vitally important that you learn to shift gears. Do you browbeat and pressure and manipulate people to perform? Or do you rely on God to work in that person's heart in the same way you want Him to work in your own? Do you rely on your own strength? Or do you rely on God's Spirit? Did you hear about Abraham? Abraham, you see, wanted to upgrade his PC to Windows XP. But his son Isaac, who was up on these things, he told him, he said, Sorry, Daddy-O. But you can't run Windows XP on your old, slow Pentium 1 processor. You need at least a Pentium 4 with a minimum of 256 megs of memory. Abraham, that great man of faith, he said to his son, God will provide the RAM. Oh, boy. Now, you might ask, in a computer age, in microchip wizardry, with all of the high-tech things going on in the world today, what in the world can we learn from a man who lived 4,000 years ago? And the answer is plenty. For though the world has changed in many ways, God's dealings with His people remain the same. His terms for us are identical with His terms for Abraham. Paul brings up Abraham in chapter 3, verse 6, By quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, he says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't circumcision, it wasn't his sacrifice, it wasn't his good works that made Abraham right with God, it was his faith. Understand that. And for us to receive the same blessing that Abraham received, We have to follow in his faith steps. Verse 10 quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27 and reminds us that the law was not some spiritual smorgasbord. It wasn't pick and choose what you want to obey. No, if you lived under the law, you were obligated to obey the whole enchilada. And if you failed in one point, you were guilty of breaking it all. That meant that everyone was under the curse of the law. And that's why Jesus had to become a curse for us. In verse 13, Paul quotes again from Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. On the cross, Jesus became a curse so that through faith we could receive God's blessing. In verse 11, again, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. He says, The just shall live by faith. The rest of chapter 3 is a commentary on God's covenant with Abraham. Now, I'm sure you've heard the expression, cut a deal. But I bet you didn't know its origin. You see, in ancient times, when covenants were sealed, animals were first sacrificed, and they had to be cut in cross sections. 
you know, from head to, to rear. And then they were sort of separated so that they formed a corridor where when you walked, you walked between the two halves of the animal carcass. What would happen is both parties would meet together and they would lock arms and they would walk together through the animal parts as a way of symbolizing their oneness and the agreement that they had made to keep each end of the deal and to fulfill the promises they had made. Well, after God blessed Abraham, Abraham went about making preparations for God to come and walk with him through the animal parts. He made the sacrifices. And all day long he waited on God to appear. He shoot off the vultures and the buzzards all day long. He was tired and he was about to doze off and go to sleep when suddenly he looked up and he saw God. God appeared in the form of a burning torch in a smoking oven. And God walked through the animal parts by himself. An incredible statement. In other words, this was not a tag team effort. Abraham's blessing, his salvation was not a joint venture. This wasn't God's part and Abraham's part. No, God walked by himself through the corridor. In other words, God was saying, this work is mine and mine alone. All Abraham did was to wake up, look on, and believe. And this is the way that God relates to people today. Jesus has done all the work for us. Our part is to simply believe. In verse 16, Paul says that grace was promised to Abraham and his seed, singular, not seeds, plural. In other words, the covenant, the blessing that he gave to Abraham was inherited by one man, Jesus, not the nation, Israel. Verse 17 points out that God's covenant with Abraham preceded the law by 430 years. In other words, faith was in force both before and after the law, which means that the law was superseded by grace. In verse 14, the question arises, what purpose then does the law serve? And the answer, it was added till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. In other words, the law was temporary. It showed us our sin. It pointed us to Jesus. But once the seed had come, the law passed away. Its transmission was another way that grace superseded the law. The Jewish law was mediated by a third party. Verse 19 says that Moses got the law from angels. Whereas verse 20 tells us that grace dialed direct. That God ratified the covenant with Abraham by himself. There was no mediary involved. You see, when you realize that the law failed to make a man right with God, you assume that there must have been some flaw in the law. Verse 21, though, says no. If rules and rituals could enhance a person's status with God, the Jewish law would have done it. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem is that no law, no matter how good, can make a person right with God. That only comes as a free gift. Prompted by God's grace, received through our faith. Verses 23 through 25 divide history into two periods. Before faith and after faith. 
Paul says that before faith, the law was a tutor or literally a nanny. It protected us from sin and it hemmed us in to the will of God. After faith, the law was no longer needed. Jesus fired the nanny. He let the old lady go. He wants us to follow him, not the law. It's through faith that we've become sons of God, that we have put on Christ. Paul reveals a glorious truth in verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the differences between us have been abolished. Today, the only distinction that matters is whether you are in Christ or you are apart from Christ. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, continue this analogy of the law as a nanny or as a tutor. You see, in the Roman world, before a son came of age, he was under the care of a nanny, sort of a male Mary Poppins. He was treated like a slave, even though he was the heir to the family fortune. You see, until he developed adult concerns and adult perspectives, the father couldn't trust him with the resources of the family. In other words, he had to learn the ropes before he was given the reins. Likewise, before Jesus came, man was under the tutelage of legalism. We were graded and guarded because we couldn't be trusted on our own to do the Father's will. But through Jesus, the Spirit of God plants God's concerns, the Father's will in our spirit. We're made sons of God, not just hired hands. Suddenly, family loyalty takes over, and the tutor gets let go. The law is no longer needed. Now we are walking in the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. In essence, Paul is saying here that legalism is for babies. It really is. It's for those who lack the faith to walk in the Spirit and live by spiritual instincts. It's for those who prefer the safety net of standards. And Paul worries about these Galatians. They need to grow up. They need to begin to relate to God as sons, not just as slaves. Verse 11 says that Paul is afraid that he's labored for them in vain. The Galatians are now listening to the wrong people. These Judaizers are leading them back into legalism. Paul reminds the Galatians how they once loved him, how they once listened to him. When he preached in Galatia, apparently he had an eye problem. Some people think he had some kind of infection in his eyes that caused him to, uh, to ooze and then to sort of crust over. And he recalls in verse 15 that if possible, he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That's how loyal they were to Paul, how much they loved him. But now they're being courted. They're being swayed by the wrong people, these false teachers, these legalists. And at the end of chapter 4, Paul recounts a case of sibling rivalry with a spiritual lesson. He uses an Old Testament story to teach a New Testament principle. Remember Abraham's two sons. Isaac was the promised child. He was a miracle of God's grace. Ishmael was the result of man's work or the flesh. Sarah and Isaac represented the grace that comes from heaven, whereas Hagar and Ishmael symbolized the law that was given on Mount Sinai. But remember Abraham's ordeal. Hagar and Ishmael became jealous of Sarah and Isaac. 
And he lived in a house with two warring women. It was awful. There was no peace. There was no rest. There was no quiet. And finally, he concluded, the only solution was to cast out the bondwoman and her son to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. And this is a lesson, Paul says, to the Galatians and to us today. The legalist will always be a thorn in the side of the person who walks by grace and lives through faith. Law and works are opposed to grace and faith. They're mutually exclusive ways of relating to God, and they can never be reconciled. The church should no more tolerate a legalist than it should tolerate a heretic. There is no peace in the family of God until legalism and the legalist get booted from the body. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 sums up Paul's message in these first four chapters. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. In other words, after you've put your faith in Jesus, don't go back to the legalism of your past. As I said in the beginning of tonight's study, trusting in good works here and there, just trying to be on the safe side, can put you on the wrong side. Paul uses some very strong language here in verse 2. If the Galatians think that circumcision adds to God's acceptance, he tells them, Christ will profit you nothing. Zero, zip, nada. That's pretty heavy. That's also true, though, of baptism, or of Sabbath keeping, or of fasting, or of tithing, or of praying, or of serving, or of Bible reading. Spiritual activities do play a role in our life, but in no way do they make us more deserving of God's favor. And if I trust in them to do so, Paul warns me that I might forfeit the merits of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says to the person who's lingering in legalism, he says, you have become estranged from Christ. That's serious. You have become estranged from Christ You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That's a severe sentence. And to me it means that they are in danger of losing their salvation. Now understand, I disagree that you can commit certain deeds, certain sinful acts, and as a result of that lose your salvation. God's favor isn't based on deeds that we do or don't do. Our salvation is based on one thing. It's the result of His grace through our faith. But you see, there is a way to lose your salvation. God's one requirement for us is faith. Thus, if I do not continue in my faith, if I go back to trusting in my own works, my own maintenance of the law, then what has happened? Then I can fall from grace. I've got to not only have faith, I've got to continue in my faith. That's the whole point of the book. You see, we get it backwards. We worry about us not doing enough to satisfy God. The real worry is about doing so much that we think that we've earned God's acceptance. That's when you become in danger. If you try to add to the all-sufficiency of the work of Jesus, it's then that you forfeit the grace of God completely. 
Guys, this is why legalism is serious business. And in verse 7, Paul really gets mad. In fact, he actually gets sort of rude. He asks these Galatians to identify the false teacher who's misled them. And then he gets rude in verse 12. He sort of vents his anger. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. In other words, the culprit who thinks circumcision makes a man more righteous. Paul's saying, just go ahead and castrate yourself then. Just go ahead and just cut yourself off if you think that's what's going to make you more right before God. I'm telling you, Paul's getting kind of getting kind of hot here. Paul says when it comes to legalism, we need to cut it off. We need to cast it out. It's grace, not law. It's faith, not flesh. It's spirit, not works. Guys, in other words, we need to keep our grip on the grace of God. But legalism is not the only danger that concerns Paul. Liberty is not legalism, but neither is liberty license. Just doing whatever. We're free from the law not to sin, but to walk in love. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The Spirit has done what the law could never do, and that is plant God's love in our hearts. And that's why Paul says in chapter 5, verse 16, Walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, too often we try to overcome our lusts through fleshly means. We get the 12 steps or the seven principles or the latest self-help plan or the program or the guru. Guys, the answer isn't self-help. The answer is spirit help. The answer is relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, walking by faith in the grace of God. You see, it's the power of the Spirit that supersedes, that overwhelms our physical drives and passions. Victory isn't the result of me fighting with my flesh. Victory is achieved when I walk in God's Spirit. In the last few verses of chapter 5, Paul predicts your future. He knows that a life will follow a predictable path based on whether it walks in the flesh or it walks in the Spirit. Here's what you can expect if you live your life apart from the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. If you choose to live apart from the power of God, if you choose to do it on your own, and you reject the grace of God, and you refuse to walk by faith, that's what you've got to look forward to. That's what's in your future. Whereas on the other side of the coin, If you walk in the Spirit, here's what you have to look forward to. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what I want. Notice our choice. It's the works of the flesh or it's the fruit of the Spirit. 
Work is what man can accomplish. Fruit is miracle growth. Fruit is from God. Trust in the Spirit and a spiritual photosynthesis occurs in our lives. Virtues begin to blossom. Without even trying, the life of the believer begins to resemble the life of his Lord Jesus. You see, only the Spirit produces that kind of fruit. Legalism produces an uppity attitude. In fact, the legalist who depends on his performance to please God falls into a trap because he or she begins to feel more secure when someone else stumbles. In other words, if you look bad, I look better. And that's why Paul warns us in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, not to look down on those who take a fall. Rather, we should lift them up. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3 is a reminder that none of us are immune to temptation. The fallen brother could have been us. And that's why Paul says in verse 4, Let each one examine his own work. Before I begin to point out another person's sin, I need to deal with my own. In my opinion, just my personal opinion, My wife would probably agree. But in my opinion, verse 6 is extremely important. It's a reminder to pay the pastor. It says, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. (laughs) Verses 7 through 9. Teach us that whatever a man sows, he also will reap. Sow apple seeds and you'll get apple trees. Sow tomato seeds and you'll get tomato plants. You never get a tomato plant by sowing apple seeds. Did you know that? You reap what you sow. Likewise, feed the sinful desires of your flesh and you'll reap destruction. Guys, Don't feed your flesh with raunchy television and with R-rated movies and then expect to grow spiritually. It doesn't work that way. It's garbage in, garbage out. If you want to grow spiritually, you've got to sow spiritual seed. You've got to read the Word. You've got to pray. You've got to fellowship. Listen to Christian music. Come to church. And remember... You never reap in the same season that you sow. There's always a delay between the sowing and the reaping. Sow good seed or bad seed, and there's always a waiting period before harvest time. And that can trick us if we're not careful. Sow bad seed, and the delay can deceive you into thinking there's no consequences for what you've done. Oh, this is good. This is fine. You know, nothing's going to happen to me. Well, wait till harvest time. On the other hand, sow good seed and you can get discouraged. You can think, well, I'll never be rewarded. When's the good fruit going to come about? And that's why Paul says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Either way, though, verse 7 is true. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. 
What you want to reap is your choice. It depends on what you sow. Usually, Paul dictated his letters to a stenographer. But verse 11 implies that he wrote Galatians with his own hand. His eyes apparently were so bad that when he wrote, he had to use large letters. But the fact that he wrote it personally stressed the importance of this message to the Galatians. This is so important. I'm going to write this to you with my own hand. The false teachers had boasted in their persuasion over the Galatians. They had manipulated them into being circumcised. It was sort of a notch in the belt of legalism. Paul counters in chapter 6 verse 14. He boasts. But listen to what he boasts in. He says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Rather than boast in his own work, Paul boasted in the work of Jesus Christ. And after embracing the cross of Jesus, nothing else in this world ever mattered to Paul again. Hey, by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Nothing else really mattered in light of Jesus and what he had done. In verse 17, Paul concludes his confrontation with these Judaizers. He says, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Hey, to silence the critics who were questioning Paul's sincerity, all he had to do was take off his shirt. Just show them the scars. You see, the pot marks from his stoning back in Lystra, back in Galatia, had made his torso look like a battlefield, like the surface of the moon. Don't say Paul wasn't sincere. You could see his scars. You could see the price he paid to bring the gospel of grace to these Galatians. His attempts to bring God's grace to these people were evidence in the scars that he bore on his own body. Paul ends the letter. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. There is a reason we call it amazing grace. And that's because it really is amazing. Father, thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this wonderful book of Galatians. Lord, I hope that tonight has whet our appetite. That has stirred us up so that we'll go back. And that we'll study it further and explore it deeper. And mine more treasures. They're certainly here. Lord, I pray for your people tonight, my brothers and sisters in Christ. People gathered in this room, Lord, I pray that they would understand just what you've done for them. That they would recognize the freedom that's theirs in Christ. And that they would enjoy that freedom and take advantage of your grace. Help us not go back to the tutor, to the nanny. Help us not go back. Help us grow up and be mature adults. Help us, Lord, to embrace your grace and walk in your spirit. And help us, Lord, to live our lives by faith in Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.